We are born as whole beings and are meant to live in connection with others. But what happens when someone is severely traumatized and loses that essential connection to themselves and others? And can someone returning from war with PTSD ever regain their place in their lives, inside themselves, with their families, and in society? Emma Seppala, PhD, is Associate Director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford. She's co-founder of Stanford's first class on the psychology of happiness, and she's also a popular Psychology Today blogger and science journalist. She's examined the impact of meditation on happiness, social connection, and compassion, and has also conducted research on the effects of yoga-based interventions for combat veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Her research has been featured in the documentary film, Free the Mind, and she is also author of the upcoming book, Room to Thrive. Emma, welcome to Health Currents Radio. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm so interested in beginning our conversation with talking about this innate capacity we have as human beings for strong connection, social connection, empathy. We're we're born whole, and then there's trauma. Could you share with our listeners what happens to a person when when they have very strong and significant trauma? So trauma often occurs when we're in a life-threatening situation or a a situation that we interpret as a life-threatening situation. Um, And that can happen at any age and any place. It could be a child that thinks that it's, you know, being threatened by an adult or that is being threatened by an adult, or it could be for an adult, it could be any any situation from a a car accident to... um, an abusive relationship uh, to uh, exposure to combat um, and, or um, a terrorist attack. Uh, sometimes even just hearing about something can help, it can uh, create some, some level of trauma. So I think the, to define trauma would be, um, it, it can be defined in a number of, of ways and, and different things can impact people differently. Uh, one thing we know, for example, with veterans coming back um, from war and who develops PTSD and who does not, is that some people can go undergo the exact same experience and not develop post-traumatic stress, whereas others will. Uh, one thing we know is that if a veteran has had um, traumatic experiences as a child, they're more likely to develop PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. On the other hand, if a veteran has had a strong family background and also um, Another protective factor is a strong spiritual or religious life. Mm. We see that they are less um, uh, less likely to develop PTSD. So it seems as if um, there are protective factors, and then there are vul- uh, factors that increase vulnerability and um, childhood trauma. You could think of the trauma kind of compiling over time. So there's childhood trauma, then there's combat trauma, uh, and then that really is the the you know the straw that breaks um, the camel's back at that point. So when that straw is broken, and when when veterans, especially because I know you've done so much work with veterans, uh, come back with PTSD, I know there are there are three different signs or symptoms of that that are are, are quite uh, strong. Mm-hmm. The one of the um, most obvious symptoms uh, for someone looking on from the outside is a hyper what we call hyper arousal. Um, in other words, it's a heightened um, sense of um, a heightened response to stimuli that are usually not um, 
threatening. For example, I'll give you one example. I was in a room with 10 veterans who had very high levels of PTSD, and um, one person uh, moved his chair back and it knocked against the wall, creating a slight sound. Um, but it sent everyone into a flurry of curses, um, and one of them went under the table. The physiology is kind of alert uh, to, uh, to an extent that is, um, it's, it's too much. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the hyperarousal symptoms, which also lead oftentimes to insomnia, because if your body is so alert, so anxious, it's hard to sleep. And um, sometimes it can prevent people from functioning normally at all. Um, they, if they see people running in the street, they get worried what's going to happen. They, they're afraid to get in their car because they don't know if they stop their car at the red light, whether there'll be a bomb there. There's, just two, there's a heightened arousal of the physiology. The second symptom is a sense of emotional numbness. So, And this might, might happen as a consequence of being exposed to something so traumatic that you shut off your emotions, but right. as a consequence, you shut off both the positive and the negative. Um, and one of the symptoms in particular is the inability to feel love again. Um, and, and that can, um, that can really interfere with uh, feelings of connection uh, with loved ones, family. And that's maybe one of the reasons it's so difficult for some, some veterans to um, connect again with their family. Now, not that this can't be recoup, you know, this can't be changed, but this is one of the symptoms, emotional numbness, um, kind of like being in a, a fog, um, not, not feeling anything. And uh, the third one is, is flashbacks. So having flashbacks coming back of the war um, in the middle of the day, um, you're back in, in you're, as if you're back there. Uh, completely, you might be driving on the freeway, and yet you are in Iraq. Right. And then you miss your exit. And that also happens at night through nightmares. So it sounds like it's very, there's something that happens in the nervous system that's so profound, that isn't, isn't there? Absolutely. And I mean, our brain is um, adapted to remember negative experiences, um, and that, that is a good thing. Um, that's why we, you know, if we've touched an electric wire in the past and why we won't go and touch it again is because we remember how terrible that felt. Right. Um, and, but as a consequence, um, in the, in the case of trauma, it's as if that system has been hijacked so that you're back in the U.S., the war is 5, 10, 30 years behind you, and yet you still have panic attacks and live bunkered up in your basement. So it's as if the past trauma has taken over the present, is no longer relevant, but has taken over. So that's where the nervous system is, I call it hijacked, um, mm -hmm. uh, which is a real severe impediment to functioning in normal life. Yeah, and we see such high rates of, of suicide, alcoholism, drug addiction, mm -hmm. and violence in, in veterans, um, which I would have mm -hmm. to think is interwoven with all of this trauma in the body. Absolutely, and it's a common side effect. So if this trauma is so strongly lodged in the nervous system and it's actually changing how we function on a day-to-day -day level, which of course then compounds our, the experience that they're having, I know that you conducted some research um, and I'd like you to just talk about that and, and what you went into looking for and, and what you started to find. Well, we know that the more common therapies uh, that are used are medical, so um, drug-based and therapeutic. And that although there are, these therapies are somewhat helpful, they're not addressing every veteran's needs. They're not addressing the needs of of, um, of all veterans, many veterans don't want to take drugs. They don't like the side effects. They don't like to depend on a drug. 
Um, others have a hard time with therapy, which often involves going over the traumatic experience again, something that's very challenging, uncomfortable. And if you're someone who's had the courage to go to war, you're not likely to want to depend on anything. You're very self-sufficient, very strong, right. and you take responsibility. And so the other thing is sometimes veterans feel let down by the system, and they don't even want to go to the VA. So as a consequence, there are a lot of veterans falling through the cracks, not getting help, and even of those who do get help, it may or may not be helpful. So we wanted to look at some um, more alternative um, modalities, and what we know is that a lot of nonprofits are offering alternative modalities that the veterans say are helping them. And in fact, the veterans have told the VA that they want more alternative modalities in the VA system, and so there is now a movement towards that. So there's a um, there's an attraction to more complementary and alternative methods, and I think one of the reasons is that the side effects are low, and it involves it doesn't involve so much dependence on a therapist. Once the practices, the techniques are learned, they can be applied by yourself. And so, we went with an intervention offered by a nonprofit called Project Welcome Home Troops, and it's a um, breathing-based intervention, a yoga breathing-based. So it's not active yoga the way you would think of it, physical postures, but really just active breathing, changing your breath. And it's a seven-day program, about three hours a day, so about 21 hours. And it teaches veterans these breathing practices. That's um, from what we see in terms of our results is that they have they decrease PTSD symptoms not only after that one week of practice, but that those improvements persist one month later and also one year later. And that we don't just see that improvement um, through self-reported questionnaires, but we actually see that on a physiological level, the more the veterans say that their their PTSD um, arousal, hyperarousal, startle response decreases, the more we actually see that in the physiology when we measure startle response. And there was also an, an improvement in, in sleep. I, I was looking at some film of a veteran talking about how he had been dependent upon Ambien on a daily mm -hmm. basis, and then it kind of went down to just maybe once in that week he was able to sleep more soundly. Mm -hmm. Yep. And where did you do this research? Through which organization? I, I mean, I know you worked with this organization, Pro Project Welcome Home uh, Troops, troops yeah. but uh, was it conducted? It was conducted at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I was a research scientist, and um, it was conducted over a, a year period at that time. And so um, we put that study together, and we, we compared a group of veterans who went through this program with a group of veterans who did not. Uh -huh. And looked at the differences over time. And so it was a breathing practice. Um, it was a pretty particular breathing practice. Yes. And it's it's offered actually in the general community through a um, nonprofit called the Art of Living Foundation um, and another nonprofit called the International Association for Human Values. And Project Welcome Home Troops offers it um, specifically to veterans free of charge. And we had heard about um, the benefits thereof, so we wanted to conduct the research and, and are really happy that we did. In fact, one of our veterans has gone on to become an instructor of the program, and um, the other veterans have th said things like, thank you for giving me my life back. Oh, that's, that must be very gratifying. It is. It just makes me want to spread this to more people who need it. So in, in terms of uh, working through trauma, since it is a, a body-centered experience, were you doing meditation with this as well, or was it just solely the breathing practice? The, the breathing practice led to a meditative state of mind. So oh. I would say, um, it, you know, it wasn't as if the breathing, it's, it's not as if they sit there and close their eyes and meditate, but the mm -hmm. breathing practice leads to such a deep state of relaxation 
that I would say they definitely experience meditation. But for a population that is very anxious, um, that has PTSD, mm-hmm. sitting and closing your eyes as a first step can be very challenging because a lot of the so. anxiety comes up at that moment. Um, in fact, it can be unbearable. But um, the thing with a breathing practice is you're actually doing something, so you're involved in an activity, but that we know that breathing impacts the parasympathetic nervous system, and a veteran will know that too because within minutes of breathing, he or she will realize that they feel calmer. So it makes immediate sense. It's not something that is maybe as esoteric as a meditation practice where the benefits may or may not be visible immediately and which may not be a first step for a highly anxious population. Absolutely. Because I, because I'm thinking just about all that energy stuck in the body and, mm-hmm. you know, just to c- connect to the mind simply without any physical, um, input mm-hmm. would be enormously difficult since in the practice of meditation, thoughts intrude constantly and to have those, you know, traumatic thoughts intruding would be yeah. incredibly difficult. Many of them have gone on to um, develop a meditation practice afterward, but I, for sure it was not the first. It was something that was became of greater interest to them as they learned the breathing. Right. So it sounds like you really entered, started the transformation through the breath and through the body. Maybe you could talk to our listeners a little bit if they're not really familiar with what the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system does. The parasympathetic nervous system is responsible for resting and digesting. Um, it's, it's really when it's at rest and restoring. The sympathetic nervous system gets us ready for action. It might get, get us ready to face a challenge. For example, we see a, an oncoming truck and we need to cross the street really fast. So our sympathetic nervous system helps us get all our systems together so we can actually bolt across. Um, but and, the, and what you want to see is a healthy person will have a healthy balance between the two where the parasympathetic nervous system can kick in pretty quickly after you've run away from that truck and just bring you back down to normal so that you feel um, calm again. Um, And in a situation where there's a lot of anxiety, sometimes there is a little bit of disruption between the parasympathetic and sympathetic where the sympathetic nervous system is um, constantly in a state of arousal, which can be very exhausting. It can be exhausting. All that adrenaline running through the system constantly. Mm-hmm. Has this work uh, has this work expanded to be inclusive also of the families of these veterans? The research has not, but mm-hmm. I think it's extremely important. I've met many family members who have been very um, very sad and, and and very challenged by um, the situation that they're facing uh, with a partner or a family member that returns changed. So it's something that needs to happen. And I know that Project Welcome Home Troops is doing it. The research isn't there yet. Well, it's so fantastic that it's out there and available for for veterans free of charge as well. Exactly. And for their families as well. So, um, yeah, you can look up that. The website is pwht.org. Right. That's Project Welcome Home Troops. Yeah. And um, I wanted to also move out of this work into something you seem incredibly passionate about, which is the study of happiness and the, the study of uh, compassion. And, and I wondered what you, the focus of your work is that you're doing at Stanford at the Center for Compassion and, and Altruism Research. Sure. Just a transition. Um, the veterans are some of the greatest examples of compassion I've ever met. They live a life of service. They're dedicated to service. In fact, they don't really understand self-interest most of the time. They, their life has been so committed to others. Um, so it, it, they were a wonderful example for me of what service really means. Um, and 
in terms of what we do at the center, we have three different activities. One is education. We do compassion curriculums. Two, we do research on the science of compassion um, with um, collaborators and using a number of different scientific methods. And um, three, we put on lots of events and conferences around the theme of compassion and compassion science in particular, really putting that out there uh, for people to learn about. We recently had a compassion of business conference, really that exemplified that compassionate leaders are leaders that are um, have more a more loyal following and a better bottom line. And we just last week had a compassionate technology conference, mm-hmm. exploring ways in which technology um, has been used to increase compassion and empathy and in really moving ways. So we uh, collaborated with Facebook on that. Mm. So uh, those are the three um, three kind of branches of the things that we do. And uh, as as you talk about compassion, I think about the origin of the word compassione, which is to be with suffering. Um, yeah. It seems that you're as you segueing back to your work with veterans, that to be able to not be in their suffering, but to be with their suffering, to have just a little bit of perspective from it probably opens up their hearts to their compassion for themselves, for others. Well, definitely when they, um, when they felt benefited and they felt that their trauma has, has um, lifted a little bit, um, they immediately go back to a more service oriented um, focus because it frees when it, when they're freed up, then they, they want to go back to being of service, which is makes them, I think some of the most valuable members of our society. They are um, extremely service-oriented. They're wise because they've seen life and death. They know what's important and what's just a first-world problem. Mm-hmm. And um, once the trauma is lifted, then you have a combination of wisdom and a spirit of service. And that, that to me, is the most powerful thing. It is quite powerful. I, we all need this opportunity to, to reconnect, I think, and, and strengthen those bonds, especially in these days where there is so much stress out there. And Yes, absolutely. And we hear so much trauma, you know, every day going on around the world and in our hometowns, et cetera. I just, yeah. I just wondered if there was, if was something you could maybe say to our listeners about what they could do to, to strengthen their own connection to themselves and mm-hmm. to, to really open up their compassionate heart. Yes, well, I, I think one thing that we all have in common is we all want to be happy, mm-hmm. I presume. And... Um, <laughs> And one thing that I'd like to emphasize is that being happy is the most unselfish thing you can do. Mm. You know, we all have people in our lives who are balls of joy, who when they walk in the room, they, they bring light into the room, they make people laugh, they uplift. Those are people who are happy. Um, and if we are happy, we influence all those around you up to three degrees of separation. <laughs> so it's a great act of service. But in order to have, in order to be happy, we are often mistaken as to what will bring us happiness. We think it'll be the next promotion, the house, the relationship, the car, whatever it is. But well, those things, while they may bring little spurts of happiness, really don't do much for our long-term happiness. And our long-term happiness is really drawn out of things like purpose and meaning, uh, of which compassion can play a big role. So having a sense of um, contributing in some way, to, and, and that has a more long-term sustainable impact on our well-being as well. But for sure in this time and age, and I'll be writing about this in my book as well, but we are um, spreading ourselves really thin, and we sometimes forget to take care of ourselves. But if we take care of ourselves, that's really the secret to everything that we that we want. Um, and part of taking care of ourselves is having a compassionate outlook to others, but also a compassionate outlook to oneself. Mm, it's a beautiful um, 
way to think about our lives. And it's, it's, a, it's a twist for some people, I think, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, Emma Seppala, I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today on Health Currents Radio. And if our listeners would like to learn more about uh, the work uh, that Emma Seppala is doing in the field of happiness and compassion, you can go to her website, emmaseppala.com that's e-m-m-a-s-e-p-p-a-l-a dot com she's also on Facebook uh, Emma Seppala and on Twitter as well and on Google Plus and Emma I know you're having a book come out soon uh, Room to Thrive that will come out in in about a year but I I will have an e-book that will come out sooner um, on some of the best um best kept scientifically based secrets to um, successful relationships. So keep an eye open for that. That definitely I think people would like to keep an eye open for. And they can find that on your website again, emmaseppala.com. Yeah, you can just sign up for the newsletter and you'll get updates on that. Great. Again, Emma, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And I wish you the best in the new year and the best in your work. Thank you very much, Ellen. (laughs) 